Welcome to Classical Etc., a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. So Martin, the question I've been wanting to ask you for a long time is, what is classical education? <laughs> classical education is, <laughs> is uh, the great books in the liberal arts. I, I don't think a lot of people realize that I, you come across as though you've been classically educated your whole life, but a lot of it is self-taught, right? I mean, you taught yourself Latin, you taught yourself some Greek, you've read a lot of the classics in your adult life. I mean, what, what drew you to the classics initially? Well, my education began when I read a Chesterton quotation for the umpteenth time. I was standing in a line in Isla Vista, California, Santa Barbara, where I was going to school at the University of California there, and I read another quote from Chesterton. Who is this guy? And so I, I did whatever my banking business was and walked, uh, walked onto campus to the, li- the, the great library they have there, and uh, looked in the card catalog, uh, some people won't remember those, and looked up G.K. Chesterton, and his books are on the fourth floor. I go up there, there's three or four shelves of Chesterton books, and I remember pulling one out that looked like it had an interesting title, Heretics. And I pulled it off the shelf, and I opened it up, and I read a paragraph, and I thought, this is the guy I've always wanted to read. So really, my introduction to just about anything literary and philosophical and I was a philosophy student actually at the time, but uh, was Chesterton, and and was following the links from Chesterton uh, because he's such a literary writer. He makes references to all these great writers, so you just kind of, uh, you know, it was a great great uh, entree into all of that. Can you remember any of the themes or ideas that he particularly elucidated that you're like? that, you know, trying to put your finger on, on it. Well, and it, I don't I don't know that it has anything specifically to do with classical education per se, but just his whole view of existence. His his joy in in existence, his attitude toward the world. That's what has affected me most uh uh from Chesterton is just his his attitude that these to this wonder at the world. And that's that I think infected me, and I think it's infected a lot of people, a good infection. And, um, and so I, you know, and I still read Chester. I was reading Chesterton last night again. Um, after not having read him for a few months, I realized I missed him. I had to go back and read. Michelle, there's a question I've been wanting to ask you for a long time. And that yes, is. Yes, I will marry you. Okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Right. Just wanted to start it off right. There you go. Actually, sorry, I'm already married. No, Michelle, the question I would like to ask you is how did you get as much experience as you've gotten in education? And yet last year was your 10th high school anniversary. I don't understand how that math works. <laughs> right. You promised me we weren't going to talk about my age. And yet here we go right off. First question. It, you cannot have that experience unless you have lived longer. Oh, okay. I understand. <laughs> So it's from a a longer life and from moving around the country a bit. I need to, I do this every time I'm filming is I have this annoying habit of just sort of, you know, like messing with my hair and eventually it's just Einsteinian. So John, uh, 
I've been looking forward to our conversation because uh, when you meet people, it's very normal that a little bit about them comes out. Um, so, you know, when you meet me, you'll probably learn that I have a dog, that I like the like the Milwaukee Bucks. They play basketball. All right. Um, one of the first things I learned about you is that you love the Greek tragedians. Yeah. I thought that was, that was unique. So, I mean, to follow what you are describing here, to enter into these plays, you've mentioned, you know, 15 names that yeah. most people are not terribly familiar yes. with. And even though what you describe here sounds like high drama and very interesting, the clash of fate versus the the choice of revenge, um, how would you recommend that someone who is not as familiar for your high school students, how do you lead them into these plays, even though they're so, they're so far off? I mean, we want to experience that catharsis, and it sounds like you think it's possible. Yeah. Well, what's the on-ramp for people? I can approach this from two directions, I think. The first is, as a, as a reminder, that there are no spoilers in the Greek world, right? These stories are from the religion of the people writing them. It'd be the equivalent of a Christian author writing a tragedy about uh, King Herod, right? It's like, okay, we know the players of this story. We're not interested so much in the players because that's a given, right? The part that's not given is how the story is told, right? That's why we have movies about the passion narrative, right? About the New Testament. We know what happens, but we want it to be told to us in a particular way or in the way we're not used to, because that's the part that's special. We use something we know as the basis for a narrative that we are not familiar with, that we're being introduced to. And it's the difference between the new version of the narrative and the old narrative that we are used to that is informational. So when it comes to this, the most important part of the story is not actually the names, right? Because again, the fact that it's alien to a American high school student and very well known to a Greek Athenian citizen is mostly irrelevant because that's not the point of the story. We don't care that Agamemnon died. We don't care that Clytemnestra, uh, you know, sought vengeance or was uh, got her just desserts. We care that a king of men subverted his power for personal gain. We care that a wife was so incensed at the death of her daughter that she was willing to kill her own husband, right? The whole point of these stories is, again, that template, that kind of mode of storytelling underneath the names and the places and the things. And there was a way out, but are you are you holding off on saying what that was, or does that come back up later in the book? You mean the way out in the original situation? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think I remind the students it's just a blow for a blow. It doesn't specify yeah. you kill me and then I'll get a chance to kill you. It just says strike me, and he's holding an axe, right? And he also, I mean, in the Green Knight, he's he's begging for it too. He, he's there's a way in which the poet characterizes him as playing off of a human weakness that the green knight knows is there he knows what gowan is going to do and he's asking him to do it he kneels down for gowan he tilts his head to the side exposing his neck and saying okay go ahead right but despite all that it's perfectly logical it's just as logical to say that gowan could have taken the holly branch and just i don't know you know tapped him on the head and said there you go i'll see you in a year which would be a risk for gowan um because then he could receive a a worse blow according to the game but that would be, you know, that would be the chivalrous thing to do. Uh, 
Uh, yes. Uh, again, <laughs> you can do a lot of things with trees. We also have the Christmas tree, right? Uh, another tradition for which we don't fully know the antecedents uh, uh, or where they came from. Uh, we do know, however, that the garlanding of Christmas trees with with ornaments, uh, typically not like, you know, bits of gold and silver, right? But uh, but uh, uh, oftentimes like baked goods or sugar ornaments, mm. things like that would be put together on a tree. Uh, typically not one that you'd cut down and bring into your home back in back in ancient times, right? But typically one in proximity to in proximity to where you lived, right? What does that have to do with what does that have to do with their kind of custom? We don't really know. And so while on one hand we can't necessarily say, you know, here's what its important Christian symbolism is, we also can't really say here's some important pagan symbolism to it. That's one of the more mysterious ones. We're not totally sure. What's going on that one, to my knowledge? Uh, uh, the, the beauty of decorating Christmas tree, I, I think it is interesting that you that kind of thing, you wouldn't necessarily find that explainable, right? I mean, beauty isn't explainable. It's purely <laughs> ornamental. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's a... People want to experience flashing lights. Why is that? <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, sadly, there are no uh, ancient German antecedents for Christmas lights okay. because of certain you know technological, technological. Uh, barriers, as you can imagine. And like we're rolling. Yes, all of this is already. Yeah, I'm sure you probably were. Better than uh, Michelle, who asked if I would marry her the first question. <laughs> um, I'm definitely not going to ask you that question. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, here, I'll, I'll put this here. So, Paul, I wore, sorry, I wore, wore a stained shirt this morning. and That's fine. You know, that forgot that the, it was That fits the farmer, the farmer vibe. <laughs> That is actually true. So this this stain, I have to, you know, I don't know if you're actually starting here, but we're going to yeah, talk about starting. it. Yeah, we're starting. So uh, two days ago, so so my chore is to get out there before anybody else in the family, let the dog out who's been sleeping. She sleeps right outside the chicken coop and put a training collar on her so we can control her because she's, she's a puppy out of control. Sure, Lindy. That's right. And I walked out in a white shirt a you know light khaki pants and normally she's fine she just sits right there i put the collar on out she goes right and she that night morning she had been in the middle of the night i guess been digging through the dirt and so she comes right up on me two front Classic. paws right there and i th <laughs> and then you just put your tie on and came to work <laughs> that is not what happened <laughs> uh my wife said where are your coveralls you're wearing those next time <laughs> yes so When I was, oh, say, 11 or 12 years old, uh, they put out, somebody published, an excellent series of hardback American biographies, famous American men and women, or ones who at least had contributed to the history of the nation. Sure. Written at say the sixth grade level or okay. the seventh grade level. I read all of those. You have a favorite uh, one? Do you remember any that you read? Oh, I, yes. I remember most all the people that, I mean, everybody from, uh, of course, Washington and sure. Jefferson and the ones you would expect. Uh, Marquis de Lafayette, Amelia Earhart, learned all about the pioneer aviatrics, you know. And the mystery of what happened to her, mm -hmm. which is still a mystery. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, it was just fascinating. Yeah, and so that led that was your formal study in in history was reading the books, seeing the places. What um, got you into teaching history? Well, what got me into teaching? Uh, actually, I had not planned to be a teacher. I uh, did not go to college to study to be a teacher. I wanted to be a journalist. Oh. But um, when I got out of school, uh, we had to look at what these jobs paid. And believe it or not, my first teaching contract was for $9,000. But working for our local paper here, the Courier-Journal, would have paid me $7,000 for a whole year's work, <laughs> where teaching was going to pay me 9000 for just nine months' work. So you were a good mercenary. Uh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> you know, you have to eat to live. Yeah. So went into teaching really as a stopgap measure. Oh, wow. I have to be honest. was a stopgap measure. But I liked it. I loved it. Something something pulled you in. I love to see students become enthusiastic. Yeah. When you presented whatever. Now, when I started teaching, of course, I taught every subject in the self-contained classroom. But uh, it was the feeling that you could make a difference yeah. in somebody's life. And uh, from then on, it was a knockdown, drag out battle. I would leave my house in Danville, right in the middle of Kentucky. I'd go to Russellville to do the nine o'clock radio show. I'd go to Hopkinsville to do the noon show, uh, some other interview in the afternoon, and then a town meeting where hundreds of people would show up in the evening. So we just barnstormed the state, and Cheryl came on a lot of those things. And we created a big problem for them, and they ended up eventually, it didn't all happen at once, but we, we, we won the fight. And in fact, one of the establishment people who was in all the secret meetings on the other side trying to fight us, she came to me one time, she said, uh, I just want to know that, that uh, Bob Sexton, he's deceased now, who is leading the, the fight to, pro to promote these reforms, and it was a lot of promotion, a lot of advertisement, um, he said, he told me the other day that you all are framing the issue. I mean, we were beating them. We beat them good, you know. So, so it was a lot of fun too for, for that cause. But in, of course, in that process, we are developing our own ideas about what education. I mean, we know what it shouldn't be, but what should it be? And so we were we were developing it all that time. During that time, did you ever find yourself in any tense situations that are memorable? Well, okay. So one day, uh, I get a call from the Partnership for Education Reform. Okay, this was, a, this was an alliance between Humana, UPS, and Ashland Oil, and they were putting a lot of money into promoting these reforms and how great they were and how this was going to change everything. And, uh, of course, they didn't like what we were doing. Uh, and so all the, everybody, all the people who were anybody in education in the state were members of this, you know, the, 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 the School Administrators Association, the School Superintendents Association, the, the School Teachers Union, they were all in this group. We got called before them, and they wanted to know what our case was. 
And so it was totally Daniel in the lion's den. And I'm, I'm in this room filled with people and I'm on the hot seat and I have to answer questions. And, uh, and I, again, I heard back from several people that you did a great job, you know? So, so we, we were able to articulate our case and they knew we had a case. It's funny you mentioned the epics. Um, he's one kind of connection between the Old Testament and the epics, which probably isn't literary or or historical that I've always found fascinating <laughs> is if you remember at the beginning of the Iliad when Achilles doesn't want to go to battle and he makes this metaphor of saying that just like the branch of a tree won't bloom almond, almond fruit, uh, mm-hmm. um, he's not going to go to war. And in the same in the Bible, you have Aaron and Aaron's staff, which has bloomed. But the other as, staffs don't bloom. Yeah, it's right, like yeah, as yeah. a symbol of, yeah. of Yahweh's faithfulness. And you have this same exact image talking about two undefeatable wills and their mm. ability to overcome natural forces. And I, mm. I, there's, I do yeah, find that there are some of these universal themes that do come up in the Bible and Greek mythology that are interesting yeah. to see how they interact with each other. When you read like the Greek mythology and um, – you know, Homer. Uh, and I think it's in particular then when you come, it's like Acts 17 or something, right? We've, we talked about this before where you have the Greeks coming out to like proclaim um, Paul and Barnabas to be, you know, Zeus and Hermes. Is that yeah, what it is yep, or something yep. like that? And it just makes total sense. Yeah. Like you're like, oh, wow, this was always so weird. But now I actually understand yeah. like, of course, that's what they're doing. Yeah. You know, like, and so it just fills in uh, some of those gaps when you see kind of firsthand the kind of um, the, the, the Greek, I guess, mind in, when it came to, um, mm. you know, religion and, um, you know, a, appeasing the gods. Like, of course, they're going to go slaughter, a, a you know, a bull or something yeah. like um, yeah. so anyway. But uh, I definitely think that there is a really there. There are some interesting and really some good kind of back and forth between um, the biblical world and the classical. And this is what no one would expect. Yeah. Arabia as unified, which before totally tribal, and as in these in this massive invasion force pours out. And by the 650s, the Middle East, um, east going beyond modern day, including Af- close to Afghanistan, North Africa, all of it's under Islamic control. Mm. And then by the 750s, the dominant power for really the next probably millennia almost is Islam, yeah. the Islamic Caliphate. And if you're a historian, that would be like the equivalent of Greenland invading us with, I don't know, maybe there's 10,000 people in Greenland, 20, like an, I always tell the kids, like a, imagine like an army of seals, Greenland Greenlanders riding seals come and invade America. That's how ludicrous mm. it would be if Islam, because it was just, everyone in that time looked down upon it. It was just this nothing land. Sounds like a trite example for this could be if Patrick Mahomes, who has been the MVP and the best uh-huh. quarterback in the NFL, yes, and is so young and looks like he's going to win the Super Bowl every year for the next twenty years, yeah, if someone else came out of, into the league who was better, yes. next year, and yeah, he yeah. was the one who did it for twenty years, yes, It'd be just like that, <laughs> which is how I felt the past uh, decade with the 49ers. It's like go. right there, and every time something bad happens, ah, <laughs> uh, the eighties were a great decade, not so much anymore, but but yeah, no one expected it, and understand, and Islam's, a, and this is something we forget because you know we're Westerners and. Mm-hmm. A lot of our ancestries from Western Europe, but Islam, there's so much that goes on, the influence that they have. I mean, they're in the 750s invading China, for goodness sake. I mean, they're going everywhere. I mean, their empire, probably aside from maybe Genghis Khan and a few others, their empire expands so rapidly 
across the world. I mean, they're in Spain, 7-Eleven. Mm-hmm. They're invading France in 740s. And there's so much learning and um, I, I could uh, try to be, on, be about time, but so many things Islamic Empire does that's just been forgotten or neglected and or just their story of the craziness of that yeah. surprise because that's why we don't know who Heraclius is. Mm. No one cares because what happens? He has a nervous breakdown because it's like, imagine, you know, let's say Mahomes goes and wins the Super Bowl this year. And then, you know, right afterwards, the whole team just gets massacred. And you know, imagine all 31 other NFL teams come up and beat them all up. And that's that's how their year ends. Like, it's just, it's like, I just got done with this game and I've got to do this and this, things happen to me. Or maybe like 31 NFL games they got to play now or something like that. Every, it's every other team. But it's just atrocious for, for Heraclius and the Empire. That's why no one knows him. Cordelia is adhering, must be adhering to some kind of faith sure. in what she does. You, you do not sacrifice your inheritance and yourself and your good name and your standing with your father um, unless you believe in something, you know, deep and true and, and you know, greater than uh, what you stand to gain in the incident. And that's that's exactly what Edmund is denying yeah. in his speech, that there is any such thing. And so Shakespeare gets those two things rolling in the play that that on the one hand, you've got this idea that there's something greater out there that's yeah. worth sacrificing everything you have for. And on the other hand, there's you get what you can while you can and when you can, because, because that's all there is. And it's it's a vision of this this perfect kind of uh, liberty. Like Edmund, Edmund is the most free. And what's what's scary, too, is that he seems to have some um, at least on the surface, some insight into the world. You know, he sees things more deeply than other characters. Mm. He's looking through all of the flattery. And you know, we could say we could say it this way, Edmund is entirely unflattered, mm. um, which makes him stronger and more dangerous even than Lear. Yeah, in that famous speech, he's so angry that being illegitimate means anything. Like, why should that yes. control his actions? And that, there's there's an insight there. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, this is where that second uh, aspect of King Lear that I love comes into play, which is the uh, the defense for literary ability and why that is necessary. Because the, the question is then, uh, we left Lear in a pretty bad spot. We, we left Lear in despair, um, unflattered, realizing basically that that in the eyes of nature, um, he's nothing. He, he's utterly insignificant. Um, and if Shakespeare were to end there, that's a depressing play. And that's and I, I don't think it's a true play either, although flattery is false. We all know that. So, so then you're left with this question of, okay, we, we've, we've denied flattery, but now we've pushed it all the way to this extreme of, of despair. How do we get out? What, how do we redeem and, and, and rescue this? Which you can talk about is an odd thing to say in a tragedy, but, but I really do think this is, you could call it a redemptive tragedy. The final point you make in the article feels personal to me, as though this comes from your personal experience. And that is, you said you've heard many friends and family say that they they dread lesson planning. And that is a dread that's never burdened you. <laughs> you hit my pet peeve. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, for example, the Memorial Press curriculum has lesson plans right. in it. Now, sometimes what they mean is simply preparing for class. Sure. All right. But a lot of schools will require the teacher from scratch to write a lesson plan. That tells me that that school does not have a curriculum. Mm. 
Because if they had a curriculum, they would have, you know, we have done this before. We have been doing this for hundreds of years. So why are we reinventing the wheel every single week? It's really just preposterous. And they don't see it because that's their world. That's what they've always been asked to do. And lesson planning has been, you get you classes in lesson planning. Where is your curriculum? You have a, you have a department, a lot of schools have a curriculum department. Well, what precisely are they doing there if they're not, if not writing lesson plans for the teachers, if they're, if, if, uh, they're, um, Sharing lesson plans from previous teachers who've mm. already done the work. Why are we why are we doing this all over again every week? It just makes no sense to me. So now we've got all these people who lived with her and walked this path with her. Mm. And the scary thing to me is what next? Mm. So what for the next generation? How Talk about a huge burden on our shoulders mm-hmm. is how do we, I am so grieved that we don't have more video of her talking mm-hmm. that we don't have, but we didn't know. I mean, who knew that you don't think that your life's going to be cut short when you're 71 years old. Right. You just think you've still got plenty of time. And we didn't have a lot of video back then either. Yeah. That was good. So I'm I'm very regretful of that because I think that would have been a way that people could still see who she was. But the ideas, you know, are still are still here and that's what we're still, you know, passionate about. And what what areas of carrying on her legacy are you excited about right now? What what things are you investing in that you still that are still life giving for you? Well, um, we're doing the best we can with the, like, second form Greek was on our mind, traditional spelling was on our mind. So we're trying to continue to do those things. But what's most exciting for me is this huge, these huge drawers I have. I cleaned out her desk. I cleaned out her papers. I put them all in boxes. There is so much there. And that project of art organizing all of that many much of it is on post-it notes or in spiral band notebooks handwritten so much that's handwritten Mm -hmm. different versions of things it's a huge job but that is the most exciting thing is when i look at those and i look at her library of books because she always marked her books all of that is is for me the future of her living on is is if we could just get all of that organized and that's the huge goal if for example i concede and for the record i do concede that a third grader who for example uses the active and the passive indiscriminately and in a way that does noticeable harm to their understandability or to the perhaps the emphatic force of their language, then by all means, you know, have them prefer, have them lean on the side, and if necessary, temporarily entirely on the side of the active voice. But in just the same way that misuse of the passive voice can be seen of as a sign, uh, seen as a sign of English immaturity or of language immaturity, 
the continued insistence on only using the active voice can be seen as its own degree of linguistic immaturity, right? If these training wheels that are simply, you know, there so that you don't fall over, but for a skilled user of, well, in this case, bicycle, are no longer useful and in fact restrictive to one's full use of that instrument, of that bicycle, can the same not be said of the stricture against the passive voice? Does using no passive voice as a mature, educated adult, or for that matter, a well-spoken high schooler or a high schooler trying to write in a mature way, uh, does that continue to be useful? I would say, depending on the kind of realities they're trying to describe, which again, at this point, can be a sufficient, sufficiently large breadth of realities uh, that could include the passive, then restricting the passive at that point would cease to be helpful and would in fact be counter uh, counterintuitive. Would you create a perfect world in which everyone would be happy, but in order to create that world, an innocent little child had to die? And that's, I mean, that's a really, I mean, that's a tough question, right? Like, would you create the most happiness for the most people if just one person had to suffer? And if you're a utilitarian and you're focused in your ethical theories are kind of filtered through that's what the things that are the most useful, then your obvious answer is yes. <laughs> you know, the most good for the most people. If one person would suffer, then, you know, then everyone else can live a, a perfectly happy life. And the book answers this in like a really unique way. Um, and it it's not at all. And it connects it with the Christian story. And so it helps you think that maybe the utilitarian approach to ethics to that sort of decision-making is actually not sufficient to answer this question. Maybe you need something bigger and broader, like a Christian view of ethics that's going to come in and answer this question. And, you know, I don't want to give away the ending, um, of course, but, um, you know, it ends in a very fascinating way um, in relationship to that particular question. But that's just one example of how the books of the Western canon, uh, the, these great books put us in situation where we're forced to ask ethical questions and that, these books do that sort of ethical formation in the lives of children way better than modern philosophy does yeah. because modern philosophy takes those ethical dilemmas and takes them out of the lives of real people or in this case, fictional people. Um, but that, but it is only in the context of a life, a life well lived that these ethical questions are brought to um, any sort of resolution. And that doesn't happen without Columbus, though he didn't picture that, of course. Sure. That's what history is, is we us doing things and causing an innumerable amount of dominoes to fall in places we never imagined. Right. So it totally, totally shifts the weight of Christendom mm -hmm. in a large way, because Western missionaries are going, while Eastern, the Eastern Church is trapped behind the Ottomans and then behind communism, and they're just now kind of getting out on their own. Um, and that's just, I mean, that's just two things right there. Yeah, you can get into the opening up of slavery as well and many sure. other topics, but those two right there is just with Columbus. That That is interesting. And I think especially if you look at the explorers and the motivations of the explorers, mm. um, especially for that first 120 years, if you ever really zoom in on what was causing these countries to start commissioning travelers to go out and try and do this because the economics of it doesn't really make sense when a lot of these people are going and dying a long way from the country that, yeah. that sent them, that at least a big part of it is this missionary impulse, mm -hmm. a, a true zeal to take their religious devotion to other places. Sometimes religious devotion is actually just a cover for oh, yeah. base motives. But there is yeah. 
some of everything. Yeah, that was a, I always tell the kids every year um, when we get to that era. There's there's the three G's, which I was taught, and you may have been taught that too, of, of uh, conquistadors and the colonial explorers. You know, mm -hmm. God, glory, and gold. Mm -hmm. Some men have one, some men have three, some men have two. Some say they have all three, but really it's about one. Mm -hmm. And yet it gets very complicated, um, of course, with that because some you know there's some missionaries who are genuinely interested in spreading Christianity, and then there's others who. It's more about the money. Right, uh, I think Cortez right. is the one who says, um, I have a sickness and the only cure is gold. Mm. Um, so he was maybe not the most noble man, you could say. From right, our, right. From view. I mean, you brought up my farm. Um, I, and we, we talked the other day how I was just shocked about how the bull and the herd you know, works manages his his herd, which I think has fascinating um implications. Sure. But like my role yeah. to that herd, yeah. when I walk up, I am always in a state of mm, <laughs> I mean, humble submission, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, these things could kill me in an instant. Mm. And I joke with my wife that the way I want to go when I'm 80 years old is I want to be run over by a bull, you sure, know, because sure. it'd be quick, I think. And, you know, if I'm 80 years old, I'm ready to go. Sure. Uh, doing what I love, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Being gored by a bull. Yeah, but my bull has no horns, thank okay. God. But he, he, he could still trample me. And so, like, I go up mm. and they come up to me. They want their head scratches and they, you know, they, 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 want, they want the care. But I'm realizing, yes, I'm their leader. I'm their farmer, right? right. But I have to, I have to recognize that I cannot control that. Mm. And, and I apply the same lesson with people. I, pe people hate my analogies with animals because they're like, you're just treating people like animals. You no, don't want to die by being gored by a person. But other than Preferably that, not. Preferably not. Up. But otherwise, um, no, I, because people, I can't force people to do what they don't want to do. Mm. Right. And I think that's where truth, beauty, and goodness come in, mm -hmm. right? Like, if I want to help people realize that their child will be best served by classical education, I can't, like, go up and strong arm, arm them into enrolling their child into my school. But what I can do is, is say, it doesn't, isn't this beautiful over here? Isn't this mm -hmm. amazing? Isn't this great? Don't you want that for your child? Right. And then they make that free choice of this is what I want because I want my child to flourish, you know, as a human being. Um, and so sort of keeping that same awe that I have in front of a thousand pound animal, right, in, in, in face of every other human person. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. If you like the show and would like to stay connected, consider subscribing on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We greatly appreciate any support for our show and ask that if you liked the episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit memoriapress.com. To connect with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.